Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for January 4, 2023. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. On the front page, one of the major stories is entitled Lawmakers, colon, Court Should Act First on Abortion Limits. Any monies, any moves by lawmakers to further restrict abortion in the state likely will wait on an Iowa Supreme Court decision on whether to reinstate a blocked law that would ban the procedure except in the earliest weeks of pregnancy. Leaders in Republican legislature say they're waiting to see how the court case plays out before taking any more steps to restrict abortion in the state including pushing ahead with an amendment to the Iowa Constitution. Republican lawmakers and anti-abortion rights advocates hope the court will use the case to set a more permissive legal standard for considering abortion restrictions after the U.S. and Iowa Supreme Courts struck down abortion rights protections last summer. The Iowa Supreme Court in June reversed its 2018 decision now saying the Iowa Constitution does not provide a fundamental right to an abortion. The U.S. Supreme Court soon after reversed the decades-old Roe v. Wade decision, removing the federal right to an abortion and sending the issue back to the states. But Iowa Supreme Court justices haven't said what standard they would use to review any new potential laws. Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitfer a Republican from Grimes, said in an interview previewing the 2023 legislative session, which begins January 9. And so at this point, I think it's prudent for us to wait and see how that case shakes out in the Iowa Supreme Court before we continue to act, Whitver said. Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley, a Republican from New Hartford, agreed. We want to be very thoughtful in our approach to this, Grassley said of House and Senate Republicans and the governor's office. We don't want to pass a bill just to pass a bill, he said. Our caucus has demonstrated for as long as I've been a part of it that we are pro-life and we want to protect the unborn. But I would like to see us get some more clarity before we move forward. There's no reason to rush this during a two-year General Assembly. An Iowa District Court judge last month declined Governor Kim Reynolds' request to reinstate a law that would effectively ban most abortions once cardiac activity is detected around the sixth week of pregnancy, before many women know they are pregnant. The governor has appealed the case to the Iowa Supreme Court, and attorneys have filed a motion to expedite. A decision, though, could take months. As the Iowa and U.S. Supreme Courts have made clear, there is no fundamental right to an abortion, Reynolds said in a statement. The decision of the people's representatives to protect life should be honored, and I believe the court will ultimately do so. The Iowa Supreme Court is entirely comprised of Republican appointees, and five of the seven justices were appointed by Reynolds. The measure, which supporters refer to as a fetal heartbeat law, has been blocked by Iowa courts since 2019. Supporters of the law say the presence of a heartbeat indicates life. 
However, medical experts say a heartbeat cannot be detected until closer to 10 weeks of pregnancy. What an ultrasound detects at six weeks is not a heartbeat, but electrical pulses, according to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and that the embryo is not yet a fetus and has only begun forming a rudimentary heart. Opponents, including Planned Parenthood, say the law restricts a woman's ability to make decisions about her body with her doctor and would block more than 98% of abortions performed in the state. Even the supposed exceptions it had for rape, incest, and the life of the women were poorly written and extremely narrow, such that they would fail to protect people in those extremely difficult circumstances, said Rita Bettis Austin, legal director for the American Civil Liberties Union of Iowa. The outcome of this case could not matter more to the health and basic rights of Iowans. Abortion remains legal in Iowa until 20 weeks of pregnancy, with exceptions after that only to save the life of the mother. The state Supreme Court this June also allowed a 24-hour waiting period previously blocked by the courts to take effect, requiring two separate appointments in order to get an abortion. There were 3,761 abortions in Iowa in 2021, according to preliminary data from the State Department of Public Health, a decrease of about 7% compared with 2020, when 4,058 abortions were performed in the state. The overall rate of abortions has declined in Iowa and across the nation over the past 30 years, according to state and national data. Republican leaders also said they do not plan to push forward a bill this year that would enshrine language in the Iowa Constitution stating it does not protect the fundamental right to an abortion. Lawmakers approved the language for the amendment during the 2021 legislative session and would need to be passed again in 2023 or 2024 for it to appear on ballots before voters in 2024. Similar proposed amendments elsewhere failed last year at the ballot box, including in the Republican-led states of Kansas and Kentucky. Whitver and Representative Stephen Holt, a Republican from Denison, who led passage of the Constitutional Amendment Bill during the 2021 session, said the Iowa Supreme Court's ruling overturning the constitutional right to an abortion renders the need to pass an amendment moot. We don't, at this point, believe the Life Amendment is necessary, Holt said, adding he agrees with Whitver and Grassley to wait on a court decision on the heartbeat law before pursuing other abortion measures, such as legislation that would define life starting at conception. Maggie DeWitt, executive director at Pulse Life Advocates, formerly Iowans for Life, said the nonprofit advocacy group nonetheless plans to push sets of bill this session that would effectively outlaw all abortions in the state. With the reversal of Roe v. Wade and the fundamental right to an abortion under the Iowa Constitution, we can then go forward in pushing common-sense regulations and restrictions for the welfare of our Iowa citizens, DeWitt said. When you look at what happened in the 2022 election, the people of Iowa spoke very loudly and very clearly in terms of Republicans having a supermajority and retaining their trifecta 
of controlling the House, Senate, and the Governor's Office, DeWitt said. And by and large, the number one platform of the Republican Party is life, she said. And so I think the people of Iowa spoke very clearly this last election that abortion is very important to them, and they do want to see restrictions and elimination of abortion here in our state. State House Democrats, whose ranks shrunk following the last election, said they will fight any efforts to further restrict abortion and will work to protect and defend reproductive freedom in the state. That includes codifying a fundamental right to abortion in the Iowa Constitution, which would require Democrats to win back majorities in both the Iowa House and Senate and hold those majorities through a second election so they could pass a proposal which would then go to Iowa voters. I'm not at all confident that it will succeed, but that doesn't mean we throw up our hands and say we're not going to fight for it anymore, said Iowa House Democratic leader Jennifer Conforst of Windsor Heights. So we introduced legislation that shows what we care about. Conforst said she fully expects Republicans, emboldened by their larger majorities and recent court decisions, will move ahead with further abortion restriction this session regardless. I just don't see them being able to stay silent on this issue when they have these majorities and they have the governor's support here, she said. House Democrats, Confor said, will fight to ensure any abortion measure put forward does not also restrict access to birth control, in vitro fertilization, and fertility treatments, and includes exceptions for rape, incest, and to save the life of the mother. More than 60% of Iowans support legal abortion in most or all cases, according to an October Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll, mirroring national polling. I am not confident the Republicans will take that point to heart and legislate on this issue based on where Iowans are, Confor said. I think they'll legislate based on where their extreme base is. Iowa Senate Democratic leader Zach Walls of Coralville echoed Confirst. Democrats are going to defend personal freedom for every Iowan whose right to make their own health care choices is under attack from extreme Republicans attacking reproductive freedom and choice, Walls said. We know that the Republican agenda is to ban abortion either after six weeks or altogether if they can get away with it. They are playing a dangerous game with people's lives, and I don't think that Iowans are going to stand for that. Also on the front page, an article entitled, Swaledale Mayor, Clerk, Councilman, and Public Works Director Resign. The city of Swaledale has been hit with a rash of resignations. Mayor John Drury tended his resignation Friday afternoon, effective Tuesday, January 3. Public Works Director Marshall Polsdorfer, City Clerk Melissa Simmons, and Councilman John Bonner also have resigned, effective January 3. In his resignation letter addressed to the residents of Swaledale, Drury wrote that in the past year, a majority of the City Council has made poor decisions that drastically and negatively impacted Simmons and Polsdorfer. Drury wrote that in 20 years as mayor, he had never seen council members treat employees so poorly. 
It's just the unprofessionalism that was being shown and choosing personal agendas over what's right for the town, Drury said Tuesday. Simmons submitted her letter of resignation December 19, writing she has, quote, never had to deal with the amount of stress and mistrust, close quote, she has experienced in the last six months. She wrote that rumors kill small communities. Leaders need to trust the individuals they selected to do their jobs, and false accusations hurt everyone involved. Drury also accused the council of breaking open meeting laws by forming quorums without public notice. There were some open meeting violations that occurred, Drury said Tuesday. I just can't be a part of that. I get no joy out of this. It's just something I had to do for myself. Councilman Roger Meyer Jr., who voted to reduce Polsdorfer's hours and duties in October, denied the allegations. That's false, Meyer said. I think what's happened is we finally got a council that the mayor doesn't control and he doesn't like it. He's been challenged and his answer is to quit. He's had 20 years of hand-picked council members. The fact that we're asking questions about our town's bills and questions about our town, the city clerk has called it conflict and the mayor has called it conflict. Meyer said he didn't find out about Drury's or Simmons' resignation until Sunday evening. He was attempting to hold a meeting at City Hall on Tuesday night, but was unsure if it could be arranged so quickly without a mayor or city clerk. He did post an agenda more than 20 hours in advance as required by law. The fact that the Globe Gazette has received his letter of resignation before the city council I think speaks about values and about what's going on, Meyer said. Cerro Gordo County Auditor Adam Wedmore said the council has a few options moving forward. Per Iowa Code, the council can appoint a person to each of the vacancies or hold a special election. If it decides to make appointments, it must do so at a public meeting. The public can petition to demand a special election to fill the elected positions within 14 days of any appointment. Normally, that would be filed with the city clerk, but Wedmore said a petition could be filed with his office. Drury was first elected in 2000 and took a two-year hiatus in 2004 and 2005. He said he would not consider serving again even if the council went through radical change in the November election. He wrote that the council's decision that led to Polsdorfer's resignation will cost the city money. The city now needs to hire a new maintenance person, and we also need to contract with a DNR-certified water and wastewater affidavit operator, his letter stated. They've got their work cut out for them, and I hope they take it seriously for a change, because there's a lot at stake, Drury said Tuesday. A woman answering at Bonner's residence said he had no comment. Council members Steve Waters and Darwin Hansen could not be reached as of Tuesday afternoon, and Simmons also had not yet responded to a message. Also on the front page, an article entitled Midwest Soil is Eroding Faster Than Ever. Modern Farming Could Be to Blame. Midwest soil is eroding at an alarming rate, according to a new first-of-its-kind research. Researchers at the University of Massachusetts found that the rate of soil erosion in the Midwestern U.S. is 10 to 1,000 times greater 
than it was before modern agricultural practices reigned supreme across the region. The study found that before modern agriculture, the rate of soil erosion was vastly smaller than what is now deemed an acceptable amount of erosion by the United States Department of Agriculture. The Midwest is losing soil for most of these sites at about 100 times faster than it's forming, Isaac Larson, a geoscience professor at the University of Massachusetts and a study co-author, told Grist. Larson, an Iowa native, said the loss of soil is a concern across the board, from the fragility of food production to concerns over groundwater pollution. He said the rich soil the Midwest is known for has been eroding and replaced with synthetic chemicals like fertilizers and pesticides. A different study released earlier this year by Larson found that the Midwest lost roughly 2 millimeters of soil per year, which is double what the USDA deems acceptable in the past 160 years. University of Massachusetts researchers found a method to get data on how much soil has been lost since before mass machinery and man disrupted the Earth's surface. By studying the amount of beryllium-10, a rare element found in stardust that makes its way to the Earth's surface after distant stars explode, scientists were able to find untouched Midwestern fields and prairies with rich amounts of space dust. When compared to fields used for corn and soybean production across the Midwest, which included sites in Iowa, Minnesota, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Kansas, the tilled fields had far less concentration of beryllium-10. Larson said the Midwest has lower natural erosion rates compared to other regions, but agriculture has sped up those rates drastically. If we can find ways to still have agriculture, but with erosion rates that are comparable to these long-term erosion rates, we're able to sustain thick, organic-rich soil, Larson said. To push for climate-smart agriculture and farming solutions has grown. Millions of dollars have poured in from private corporations and nonprofits in recent years, and now the federal government is pushing for $20 billion for farmers to adopt climate-smart practices. Generally, two methods seen to help protect soil health are cover crops, fusing vegetation not meant to be harvested in between harvested crops to protect the soil from erosion, and no-till farming, where growers try not to disturb the soil during planting and harvesting as much as possible to ensure nutrients stay locked into the ground and erosion doesn't occur. Both of these methods are used in combination with changes to harvests, such as planting perennial crops across the country, as the nation's agricultural industry adapts to a warming climate. While the effectiveness of popular methods like cover crops has been challenged, despite more and more Midwest farmers using them, agriculture advocates continue to push for more farmers to adopt less intrusive methods to stop erosion. Kathy Day, Climate Policy Coordinator for National Sustainable Agricultural Coalition, or NSAC, an advocacy organization, said climate adoption and soil health vary by region, 
from the growth of agroforestry to a push for no fertilizer, but across the board, more funding is needed for farmers to learn and adopt practices to prevent soil loss. She said federal legislation was at the top of her mind to help farmers and growers look to change their methods. We're asking that they put a priority on soil health and put a priority on climate mitigation and adaptation as well, Day said. On page two, we find an article entitled, A North Iowa Woman Has Won a $300,000 Lottery Prize. According to a press release, Nicole Anderson of Mason City won the 15th top prize in the Iowa Lottery's colossal crossword scratch game on a ticket purchased at Quickstar, 1316 4th Street Southwest in Mason City. She claimed her prize Friday at Lottery Headquarters in Clive. Also, we have an article entitled Man Shot in Mason City on Monday, Investigation Underway. Authorities are investigating a shooting that took place on Monday, which sent a man to the hospital with injuries. The shooting took place in the 300 block of 1st Street Southwest around 12.42 p.m. According to a statement from the Mason City Police Department, an adult male was found with two gunshot wounds near the intersection of 1st Street Southwest and South Monroe Avenue and was taken to Mercy One North, Iowa. His condition is unknown at this time. Officers could be seen collecting evidence and canvassing the area where they also took witness statements. Iowa State Patrol, Mason City EMS, and the Cerro Gordo County Sheriff's Office all assisted at the scene. The shooting is still under investigation by the Mason City Police Department. Anyone with information should contact the department. There is no ongoing threat to the public, the statement said. In an article by Aaron Murphy of the Globe Gazette Des Moines Bureau, Tom Miller reflects on ending his run as nation's longest-serving attorney general. As he leaves the office after a national record-setting 40 years, Tom Miller considers the work he did alongside other states' attorneys general to be among his greatest accomplishments. The 78-year-old Miller, a Democrat originally from Dubuque, is serving his final days as Iowa attorney general. The longest-serving state attorney general in the U.S. history, Miller lost his latest re-election campaign in November to Republican Brenna Byrd. Miller's last official day on the job was Tuesday. He spoke about his 10 four-year terms. Miller said one of the things of which he's most proud is his work on multi-state lawsuits on behalf of consumers. Over his 40 years in office, Miller worked on many such lawsuits, and his office was asked to take the lead in a few major cases that resulted in billions of dollars in settlement funds to Iowa. It just struck me that, particularly in a state like Iowa, but virtually every state, you could do so much more as a group of states than you could individually. Particularly large corporations just could have out-resourced us, and that changed when we did things together, Miller said. Miller was Iowa Attorney General since 1979, aside from a four-year break when he ran unsuccessfully for governor. While there were many such lawsuits over the span of his career, Miller highlights three in particular. The 1998 settlement of a lawsuit with tobacco companies over advertising, marketing, and promotion of cigarettes. 
The settlement resulted in more than $1.4 billion in payments to Iowa, according to Miller's office, not to mention reductions in smoking. The 2002 settlement of a lawsuit challenging Microsoft's monopoly on the software industry, which Miller said was good for competition, innovation, businesses, and consumers. And the the 2012 settlement for homeowners in a national bank mortgage case. Multi-state lawsuits became a big part of my career because we could do some really big things for Iowans that we couldn't do alone, Miller said. In recent years, Miller has led the Iowa Attorney General's office in multi-state lawsuits against pharmaceutical companies who are alleged to have contributed to the nation's opioid crisis. Thus far, the settlements have resulted in new regulations of opioid distribution and are expected to bring to Iowa nearly $350 million in settlement funds over the next 18 years, Miller's office said. In 2019, Miller struck a deal with Republican Governor Kim Reynolds, by which he agreed to get her blessing before joining a multi-state lawsuit. Reynolds, in turn, agreed to veto legislation passed by Republican-majority Iowa legislature that would have put such a requirement into state law. The legislation was produced because Iowa Republicans did not like Miller's office joining multi-state lawsuits against then-Republican President Donald Trump's administration. Miller said he agreed to the deal with Reynolds in order to prevent future Iowa attorneys general from being hamstrung by state law. His successor, who said she would not abide by the same agreement as Miller did, campaigned on a platform that included suing Democratic Biden administration over what she called overreach. Byrd has served as the county attorney for Fremont, Guthrie, and Ottoman counties. She worked as former former Republican U.S. Representative Steve King's counsel and chief of staff until 2010. After that, she worked as Governor Terry Branstead's legal counsel until 2015. Miller said he believes the hallmark of his time in office has been his willingness to do the right thing regardless of the political implications. Miller's office has defended the state in lawsuits brought by Democratic-minded organizations only occasionally withdrawing from cases over potential conflicts of interest. But in 2018, Miller for the first time withdrew from a case based on his ideology. He declined to represent the state in its case, defending legislation that would have required a 24-hour waiting period before a woman could have an abortion. The law was never implemented because it was struck down by the state courts. Miller repeated the action in 2022 when he withdrew the office from legal wrangling over the case when it was resurrected in the wake of abortion rulings by the Iowa and U.S. Supreme Courts. This decision is consistent with my disqualification in the fetal heartbeat case in 2018, Miller said in a statement after his decision in 2022 to once again withdraw his office from the case. In that case, I stated that I could not zealously assert the state's position because of my core belief that the statute, if held, would undermine rights and protections for women. On the whole, Miller said, he has been willing to work across political party lines and act in the best interest of Iowans, regardless of the political consequences. We've done it our way in the sense that I'm willing to work across party lines, willing to compromise, he said, 
But in terms of values and principles, we never compromised. We did it our way, which is basically doing the right thing, no matter what the political circumstances were at the time. Miller said he's not sure what will come next. He said he plans to take some time off to catch up and recharge, but that he expects to stay at least somewhat active in causes that are important to him. I don't want to totally retire, but I want to have some time off, he said. As for the future of the Iowa Attorney General's office under Byrd, Miller said he'll be watching to see how the state manages the opioid settlement funds and the office's future work on this issue. It's really a great office. It's, in my view, the best office in state government for a variety of reasons, Miller said. She'll have some opportunities to do some really good things, and obviously that's up to her. On page four is an article entitled Messy Start for Congress. McCarthy determined but falls short in bid to lead Republicans. Unable to elect Republican leader Kevin McCarthy as the new House Speaker Tuesday, the Republicans adjourned for the day in disarray as the party tries to regroup from a historic defeat after a long, messy start for the new Congress. The surprise end to day one shows there is no easy way out for McCarthy, whose effort to claim the gavel collapsed into opposition from conservatives. The House agreed to return at noon Wednesday. Without a speaker, the House cannot fully form, swearing in its members, naming its committee chairman, engaging in floor proceedings, and launching investigations of the Biden administration. We all came here to get things done, said the second-ranking Republican, Representative Steve Scalise, in a rousing speech urging his colleagues to drop their protest. Railing against President Joe Biden's agenda, Scalise said, We can't start fixing those problems until we elect Kevin McCarthy our next speaker. It was a chaotic start to the new Congress and pointed to a tangled road ahead with Republicans now in control of the House. A new generation of conservative Republicans, many aligned with Donald Trump's MAGA agenda, want to upend business as usual in Washington and were committed to stop McCarthy's rise without concessions to their priorities. The American people are watching, and it's a good thing, said Representative Chip Roy, a Republican from Texas, who nominated fellow conservative Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio as an alternative for Speaker. McCarthy huddled briefly with aides, then appeared intent on simply trying to wear down his colleagues. Earlier, he strode into the chamber, posed for photos, and received a standing ovation from many on his side of the aisle after being nominated by the third-ranking Republican, Representative Elise Stefanik of New York. But on the first vote, a challenge was quickly raised, by Representative Andy Biggs, a Republican from Arizona, a conservative former leader of the Freedom Caucus, who was nominated by a fellow conservative as Speaker. In all, 19 Republicans peeled away, denying McCarthy the majority he needs as they cast votes for Biggs, Jordan, or others in protest. It was all in contrast to the other side of the Capitol, where Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell will officially become the chamber's longest-serving party leader in history. Despite being in the minority in the Senate, where Democrats hold a slim 51-49 majority, McConnell could prove to be a viable partner 
as Biden, Biden seeks bipartisan victories in the new era of divided government. You are listening to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for January 4, 2023 on IRIS, the Iowa Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. First comma from Clear Lake, Martin Irving Hansen, 82, of rural Clear Lake, died Sunday, January 1, 2023, at the Oakwood Care Center, Clear Lake, with family members at his side all weekend and at the time of his death. A celebration of Martin's life will be held on Saturday, July 1, 2023, at 10.30 a.m. at the Ventura Community Center, 4 Weimer Street, Ventura, Iowa. Food and fellowship will follow at the same location. The family asks that you bring a happy memory or story of special times spent with Martin to share. Martin Irving Hansen was born on July 5, 1940 in Swaledale, Iowa, the second of six children born to Elmer and Garnet Pierce Hansen. He attended country school, often riding horses to the schoolhouse with his siblings where they would stake the horses out during the day and ride back home after school. At an early age, Martin and his brothers learned how to break and train spirited horses from their father. They all became excellent horsemen. Martin worked extremely hard throughout his life to support his family. He owned and operated a backhoe, stump grinder, and an open-ditch tiling machine. He used his excavator to dig basements and fix tile, and he did custom hay baling for many other farmers. He was the first Vermeer dealer in Cerro Gordo County. He also farmed the homestead for several years, always respecting the land, enjoying the woods, and God's nature therein. When Martin was a young lad, he often accompanied his sister, Janice, to the surf ballroom, just in case she had a flat tire on the way home. This began his love of dancing, and at the age of 25, he met the love of his life, Fanny Wagner, at the surf. One year later, January 7, 1966, they eloped, and they have been dancing together ever since. Martin was a kind and loving person, adored by his wife and children, never missing his children's country band performances, his son's wrestling matches, his daughter's basketball games, or the many band and chorus events through the years. He later attended his grandchildren's events, cheering them on and showing his love. In November 2007, Martin chose full immersion baptism and confirmation in the Clear Lake Community of Christ congregation, where he faithfully attended and served for many years prior to and after his baptism. Martin taught and lived the golden rule, treating others as he would like to be treated. He lived his life with great generosity and love toward others. After being hospitalized for COVID in September of 2021, Martin entered the Oakwood Care Center for therapy and was able to return to and enjoy his country home with Fanny and family. In May of 2022, he returned to Oakwood as a resident. He was well-liked by the staff and could come up with some cute quips which endeared him to them. They soon learned about his love of pie and spoiled him with an extra piece here and there. He loved attending music therapy with Fanny and would sing along with the songs he learned as a child. Many Yahtzee games were played upon visits with his family, his daughter Jill getting three Yahtzees in one game. 
Jill had Martin to her home in Clear Lake many times for meals and to see his family, to enjoy the grandchildren and great grandchildren's and great grandchildren's antics and fun. Martin had some tough times dealing with Alzheimer's, but his family was there for him, as was the staff at Oakwood. The family is grateful for Oakwood's kind and loving care, not only for Martin, but our family as well. Left to cherish his memory are his wife Fanny Wagner Hansen, Clear Lake, his children Michael and Emma Hansen, Columbia, South Dakota, Jill and Robert Branstead, Clear Lake, Iowa, Andrew and Lori Hansen, Apple Valley, Minnesota, his 14 grandchildren and three great-grandchildren, Benjamin and Sarah Hansen, and son Rhett Jacob and Jade Lou Branstead, and daughters Mary and Raylin, Harley Hansen, Keeley Branstead, Ezekiel Branstead, Isaac Branstead, Kara Branstead, Kirsten Branstead, Cody Hansen, Degafitch Hansen, Degane Hansen, Olivia Hansen, Luella Hansen, and Royce Hansen. He is also survived by his siblings, Janice and Ron Engel, Rita and Jack Fulmouth, Alan Hansen, and Garnet Roney, as well as other friends and relatives. He was preceded in death by his parents, his brother Lawrence, and his good friend, Roger Best. Margaret and Mary Shanks, 89, of Mason City, Iowa, passed away Friday, December 23, 2022, at the Muse Norris Hospice Inpatient Unit. Memorial services will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, January 7, 2023, at the Major Erickson Funeral Home, 111 North Pennsylvania Avenue, with the pastor Scott Davis officiating. Margaret was born to Reuben and Matilde Bonsack Fries, Growing up on a farm with Brother Don instilled in her a work ethic that carried through her life. Margaret attended school in Nora Springs and worked at the bakery in Nora Springs. Margaret was blessed with five children. As a loving mother, she provided her children with great childhood memories, often doing without for herself to make sure the family had what was needed. She was a loving, devoted wife to Earl for 61 years. She took accounting classes and managed the finances for Earl's custom cabinet and construction business. As the children grew, she also worked at part-time jobs to help provide for her family. Family was very important to Margaret. She was always there for her children, praying them through every event in their lives. She also loved being a grandma and watching her grandsons grow into young men. She truly treasured them. Margaret enjoyed reading and always grew large vegetable and flower gardens. She had a love for animals, helping many a stray cat over the years. She loved being outdoors. While Earl was alive, it was very common for her to be beside Earl, helping whether it was cutting down another tree, tending to the yard, or doing another project. Margaret had been a member of several churches over her lifetime, and dearly loved her circle of church friends. She was baptized in 1968 and ordained as a deaconess in 1994. She was often behind the scenes, serving in some way. Margaret was one that never wanted to be a bother to anyone. Instead, she was always concerned and praying for others. She and Earl found a very loving, God-centered family and were members of Grace Evangelical Church. Margaret's unwavering faith in God 
was a constant that guided her through life. Stanley Jean Butch Holm, 75, of Mason City, passed away peacefully December 24, 2022, at his home in Mason City. Visitation will be held from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Friday, January 6, 2023, at Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel, 126 3rd Street, Northeast Mason City, Iowa. Those left to cherish his memory are his children, Stephanie Fish, Patty Kenyon, Doug Holm, Aliana Ryan, and grandchildren, siblings Dick Holm, Leona Walker, and Jan John Martin, as well as nieces, nephews, and extended family. Beverly J. Burrell, Beverly Jean Burrell, 84, passed away peacefully on December 31, 2022. A visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, January 5, at the Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories Stateroom. A funeral service will be held at 10.30 a.m. Friday, January 6, at the Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. Interment will follow at Oak Hill Cemetery. Beverly graduated at a saluted, as a salutatorian from Mason City High School. And Genevieve, Genevieve Jen Marie Hunt Lapierre, 85, passed away Tuesday, December 27, 2022, at Mercy One North Iowa Medical Center, Mason City, Iowa. A memorial service will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, April 22, 2023, at Wesley United Methodist Church, 1405 South Pennsylvania Avenue, Mason City, with Chaplain Beverly Butler and Pastor Craig Luttrell officiating. Burial will be in Memorial Park Cemetery, Mason City. Visitation will be held one hour prior to the service from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, April 22, 2023, at the church. In sports, we have an article regarding college men's basketball. Freshman Lipsy is playing like a veteran. From Ames, Iowa, Iowa State's Tamman Lipsy cleaned up, cooled down, and briefly basked in the afterglow of his team's convincing 76-62 Big 12 season opening win Saturday over then number 12 Baylor. Then he strode back onto the floor of Hilton Coliseum, eager to connect with loved ones, but found himself momentarily blocked. The smooth and skilled 6-1 point guard didn't mind a bit. He smiled instead. I was like... I can't wait to see my family, said Lipsy, who scored eight points while dishing out a career-high tying eight assists against the Bears. I had about 30 people wanting autographs and pictures, and I was out there for like 15 minutes before I even saw my family. But I love that stuff. I love being able to make someone's day, make a kid's day, because I know what it's like. Lipsy's ability to defend at a high level finish at the rim, and crisply facilitate at such a young age has been a key component of early season success for the Cyclones, who are 10-2 and overall, 1-0 and in the conference, who face Oklahoma at 6 p.m. Wednesday in Norman. The Ames native ranks among the top seven in the league in assists per game, assists to turnover ratio, and steals. Against Baylor, 
Lipsy ignited a 10-0 run late in the first half that helped ISU eventually snap a nine-game regular season losing streak in the series. And Bears coach Scott Drew took notice. I think any freshman that plays in this league's got to be special because you're not going to play a freshman and win if they're not special, Drew said after the game. I think the best thing he does is take care of the basketball. He's tremendous, doesn't turn it over, and gets his shooters shots. And the other thing is defensively, he's really, really good for a freshman. Lipsy's just getting started, too. He'll need to be at his best on a nightly basis and continue to prepare, practice, and play like a veteran. By all accounts, he's consistently delivering on those fronts. He's a tremendous competitor, said Cyclone head coach T.J. Otzelberger, whose team leads the nation in turnover percentage, according to Ken Palm. He cares, has that sense of pride, really wants our team to do well, and you could sense something in him at that point in the Baylor game where my team needs me right now and it's time to step up. Credit to him for seeing it and being that intentional and stepping up and doing it. Each ISU player will obviously need to do the same against the Sooners and throughout the rugged Big 12 slate. Every team in the league is among the top 44 in the NET standings, and five are in the top 26. Oklahoma's 44th, but excels at both shooting three-pointers and defending beyond the arc. They're going to be hungry for a win, Otzelberger said, coming off a tough loss a one-point loss to Texas at home. They've got a lot of defensive intent, and offensively they can really pace the floor, space the floor. Lipsy's helping the Cyclones do the same, and will likely attract more post-game admirers as he builds off his early season success. He plays at his own pace, ISU senior guard, senior forward Trey King said. Nobody rattles him. Nobody gets him sped up. And it's beautiful. In college football, we have an article entitled Extra Juice, Title-Seeking TCU Used to Underdog Label. From Fort Worth, Texas, big right guard Wes Harris and his TCU teammates are hearing again just how big and physical their next opponent is and how much of an underdog they are against Georgia in the national championship game. They heard a lot of the same things going into their college football playoff semifinal against Big Ten champion Michigan, which is sitting at home while the Horned Frogs, 13-1, get ready to play the defending national champions Monday night. It just kind of lights a fire underneath you, Harris said Tuesday. Definitely gave us a little bit of extra juice. We were tired of hearing about it and were able to make a statement to show that we were a physical football team too. Immediately after their 51-45 win at the Fiesta Bowl on New Year's Eve, first-year Frogs coach Sonny Dykes said he felt they were definitely the most physical team on the field. TCU had four sacks and outrushed Michigan 263 yards to 186, even after the Wolverines had a 54-yard run on the game's very first snap. We knew we were a physical team, and we got to show that during the game and we've got to keep the same mindset, said defensive end Dylan Horton, who had all four of those sacks. The Horned Frogs are listed 
as 13.5-point underdogs against Georgia, which is 14-0, in the championship game in California, according to FanDuel Sportsbook. They were 7.5-point underdogs against Michigan. Linebacker D. Winters said the predictions were simply fuel for the team. It just fuels us as a team, linebacker D. Winters said. Obviously, being the underdog is something we're not unfamiliar with, added standout receiver Quentin Johnston. So going going to try to just keep moving like we did the rest of the season and keep our heads to the ground and keep playing football. TCU's only loss this season was in overtime to Kansas State in the Big 12 championship game after Heisman Trophy runner-up Max Dugan led them to 11 points in the final seven and a half minutes of regulation to tie the game. The Frogs won five games in the regular season by coming from behind after halftime, including double-digit deficits in back-to-back games against top 25 teams in October. The interesting thing was we felt like we've been a physical team all year, and I think those inside the football program certainly recognize that, Dyke said. We felt like our success in the second half was because of that physical play, that mentality that we carried, really, all season. As the game went along, we felt like our guys got stronger and got more physical. And that's been, you know, pretty consistent, really, throughout the year. Dykes sees a lot of similarities in Georgia and Michigan, though he believes the Bulldogs are more athletic, including their typical SEC defensive ends that are physical, with great speed and skills. That's kind of the whole team, Dyke said. It's just a very athletic football team, what you would expect from a defending national championship team and a team that's been number one for most of the year. Dugan said the Horn Frogs took about 24 hours to enjoy the victory over Michigan, but turned their attention to Georgia after returning Sunday to campus. They know everyone is now wondering if they can be more physical than Georgia and repeat what they did against then-undefeated Michigan. I don't see why not, man. I mean, shoot, it's a one-game tournament, Harris said. Everybody's got both feet and ten toes down, and we're excited to go out there and just have another opportunity to play another game. This one just happens to be for a national championship. Also, in college football... Decisions, transfers will dictate Hawkeye future. As Iowa's football program picked up a third player from the transfer portal on Sunday, decisions in upcoming days by current Hawkeyes will determine how much experience will return in 2023. Nine players who started off on offense and five who opened on defense in Iowa's 21-0 shutout of Kentucky in the Transperfect Music City Bowl on Saturday, are positioned to be part of the team next season. Four more defensive starters and one more on offense have an additional year of eligibility remaining if they choose to use it. Ends Joe Evans and John Wagoner, tackle Noah Shannon and linebacker Seth Benson on defense and fullback Monty Potabom on offense, have yet to publicly address their future plans. Receiver Nico Regani announced his plans to return for his sixth season last week. Tight end Sam Laporta and linebacker Jack Campbell, who both could return for an additional year, 
seemed positioned to take their game to the next level, and cornerback Riley Moss used his additional year of eligibility during the 8-5 season that concluded with another dominating defensive effort. The Wildcats became the sixth opponent to finish with fewer than 200 yards against a defense which ended the season surrendering 10 or fewer points in nine games, the most for the Iowa program since 1903. Offense proved to be a season-long struggle for the Hawkeyes, who won eight games despite averaging 17.6 points and being held to fewer than 200 total yards four times, and topping that mark against Kentucky by just six yards. Offensive line development will be important in the offseason, and it's no coincidence that Iowa's roster additions through the transfer portal have all been on the offensive side of the ball. Quarterback Cade McNamara and tight end Eric All, both former Michigan players, will join the Hawkeyes in the spring, as will the latest Hawkeye transfer portal pickup, Charleston Southern receiver Seth Anderson. Arriving at Iowa with three years of eligibility after being named the Offensive Freshman of the Year in the Big South Conference, the six-foot, 178-pound Anderson earned second-team all-conference honors while catching 42 passes for 612 yards and seven touchdowns in 10 games this fall for Charleston Southern. The son of 10-year NFL receiver Willie Flipper Anderson is a product of the same prep program at North Gwinnett High School in suburban Atlanta that produced former Hawkeye running back Tyler Goodson. Anderson selected Iowa over offers from Georgia Tech, Appalachian State, and James Madison. The list of transfers, which could continue to grow, combined with returning experience, has Hawkeyes excited about the future. I really think this team can go far, and I just really want to be part of it, punter Torrey Taylor said, citing that as a reason he is returning and not exploring an early exit for the NFL draft. I'm really excited. It's going to be a great year. Looking at a group of offensive starters that included four sophomores, three freshmen, and a junior, Laporta senses that as well. This program is in great hands, he said. These young guys, they are really going to spring forward and do big things. Carson May plans to leave the University of Iowa football program before ever taking a snap for the Hawkeyes in a game. The true freshman quarterback, who arrived in Iowa City in June, announced Tuesday that he was entering the transfer portal, the second Iowa quarterback to enter the transfer portal since the end of the regular season. Alex Padilla, the backup to starter Spencer Petrus last season, announced his plans to transfer on November 29, four days after the Hawkeyes concluded the regular season with a 24-17 loss at Nebraska. May, a six-foot four, 221 pound native of Jones, Oklahoma, announced his decision to seek an opportunity elsewhere on social media. Thank you, Iowa, May wrote on Twitter. I have entered the transfer portal with four years of eligibility remaining. He exits after being listed as the backup to redshirt freshman Joe Labus for Iowa's 21-0 victory over Kentucky in the Transperfect Music City Bowl on Saturday. 
And that does it for today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for January 4, 2023. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening. <laughs>